Today's date's November 18th, 2001, and the scripture reading is Matthew 6, 19-21 and 25-34. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll continue to do through this month. The first 18 verses in this chapter on piety, including the Lord's Prayer, and Dan taught a pretty good lesson on that five and a half months ago. Today, we start at verse 19, and it's on things of the world. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Well, the first order of business has to do with this comment about a pretty good lesson on the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> That's gratitude for you. Up in the early hours every Sunday and a pretty good lesson. Anybody want to volunteer as the reader? <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I want to say in this continued reading from the Sermon on the Mountain is that there is a connection between the temporal world and the post-death spiritual world, but their treasures are not the same. The formal teachings of the Mountain Sermon are the most concentrated, succinct summary in the Bible of the kind of life that we are to live in this real world. But, and this is a huge but, they also concern post-death issues in that eternal world that we call the kingdom of heaven. The Bible is unequivocal about the immortality of the human soul. It's absolutely unequivocal about the immortality of the human soul. And that is our great hope. Immortality is a primal need of humans in temporal life because we all know that temporal life ends. It is a great human hope that there is life after death. 
But it is also explicit in the scripture that the immortal destiny is determined at least in part by our actions in this real world. Now here Jesus makes clear that the treasures of the two worlds are different. The treasures of the temporal world are different from the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. The treasures of temporal life have two fundamental flaws. First, they do not last. They're subject to entropy. Like everything else in the universe, they will run down. They do not last. And secondly, they're not transferable to the kingdom of heaven. The earthly treasures are usually considered first to be money or wealth, and then derivative treasures which can be purchased by money. They are in the first sense things. But not all the treasures of earth are things. There are other treasures coveted in this real world, like power and fame. The issues of money and wealth and power and fame are fundamentally flawed because they give the sense of security and safety, and I might add importance in life. Heavenly treasures are transferable and eternal. They're not subject to entropy or any other form of destruction. Now, the Holy Trinity of heavenly treasures, the tripartite makeup of the heavenly treasures are these. First, faithfulness to God and to his Christ, fealty to God. Second, love for humans, for all humans. And third, practiced mercy. Now, the repertoire of heavenly treasures is vast, but all are comprehended in this holy trinity. Faithfulness to God, the love of all humans, and practiced mercy. And the reason that the love of all humans is separated from practiced mercy is that practiced mercy has to do primarily with human temporal need. But love for all humans involves love for their very souls, such that their interactions with God are covered as well. So these treasures are very different from temporal treasures. Now, notice an important thing here. It is the hoarding of earthly treasures that Jesus condemns. It is the coveting and hoarding of earthly treasures, the accumulation that he objects to. Because when one hoards money or other things, it is a telltale sign that God is not first. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, earthly goods are given to be used, not collected. And that is what Jesus is addressing here. Money as a goal is an earthly treasure, non-transferable. You can't take it with you. But money not hoarded and used as an instrument 
to support the kingdom of God is a heavenly treasure. The same thing could apply to power or fame. If one uses power, let's say, in a business or in a government, on behalf of the kingdom of God, rather as an accumulation for personal aggrandizement, it moves from being a treasure on earth to being a treasure in heaven. And the same thing could be said for fame. It is the coveting of these things, the holding on to them, putting them first that Jesus objects to. Shared, they become treasures. Last Sunday, one of our class members said to me that he and his wife always do special things for Christmas, and they have for several years, but they wanted to increase their usual gift five times. And what they wanted to establish was an emergency fund for the class. When I'm talking about how one can use substance as a treasure in, in heaven. And the idea was that they wanted to do this in one sense because I'm involved in taking care of the poor in Parkland Hospital. On Thursday, I found out about a person who is very ill. Dr. Michael Waits over here takes care of her. And because she can't work anymore and she's used up all her sick leave, she's about to lose her health insurance. It's an emergency. This gift from somebody else will allow her to get her needs taken care of, at least temporarily, while we try to figure out some other way to handle it. This is a classic example of not hoarding a resource, but using it. And we need to remember that. This is not a condemnation. Jesus is not condemning things in the world. He just wants them used for the kingdom of God. Now, we tend to think that wealth and power and fame make us secure. And there's nothing further than the truth. George Bernard Shaw noted a detrimental effect of hoarding things. And what he said in St. Joan is, the selfish pursuit of personal power does not nerve men. It does not give courage to be or to battle. In the vernacular, we would say, heavenly treasures produce nerves of steel. That a connection to God nerves a human, gives courage. We think that these things make us secure, and in the end, they make us cowards, terrified to lose wealth or health or anything else. Bernard Shaw got that very right. Now, I want to say one other thing before leaving this first point. I debated about it because I'm unsure about exactly what it means. And I'll tell you why I've been thinking about it. If one's focus in mortal life is on heavenly treasures, it assures continuation of the practice in eternal life. Now, let me tell you what prompted this. And I don't know whether this is right or not, but I'm going to mention it anyway. I read a statement by Kant that I had never read before. It was a statement about death and life and thought. And this is what he said. The death of the body may indeed be the end of the sensational use of our mind, 
but only the beginning of the intellectual use. He's using sensational use here in, in an ancient way of writing and thinking. That is, the feeling sentient accompaniments of being alive in the body. It doesn't mean you have a sensational life. It means that you have all the attributes of a body. And then he goes on to say, if it's true that with death the intellectual life continues, the body would then be not the cause of our thinking, but merely a condition restrictive thereof, although essential to our sensuous and animal consciousness, it may be regarded as an impeder of the pure spiritual life. That's an interesting thought. That in the temporal life, in the body, it is hard to have pure spiritual thought. And so the question is, well, what is he really hinting at? And I'm not sure. Now, I want to say in passing that no modern neuroscientist thinks that it's possible to think without a brain. They would poo-poo this. I mean, they don't. I'm not telling my neuroscientist friends I said this. But Kant seems to think that in heaven, the sort of thoughts that we long to focus on in life may continue. It's a great mystery what life after death will be. John says in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But when he comes, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Now the hint seems to be that instead of being some floating piece of fog that freed from the impeding demands of the body, we will lift our capacity for dialogue with the unmasked God. And the idea would be that we, not equal but more closely equal in the spiritual sense, being like him, may have serious dialogue. Lord, was that you? that sent him to me that day? Lord, why did you make the world as it is? Why did that happen? Lord, is there another universe somewhere else? Kant seems to be saying that the serious questions for people who are seeking the treasures of heaven may continue in heaven. And if some have thought and speculated are there other duties somewhere else, some other universe? Well, it's a minor point, but I like it. It's something that Kant usually wouldn't speak to because it's very mystical. But it certainly rings true to me as a possibility that that is one of the continued gifts of storing up one's treasure in heaven. I mean, you know, scientists always want to know. I always want to know what these things mean. And, of course, you don't know. But the bottom line of the first point is pretty simple. Don't covet and store earthly treasures. They divert one's heart from God. Store up heavenly treasures. They last and link the heart to God. And remember, you can take no treasure with you. I've cited here before 
the missionary Jim Elliott statement. You remember he was the missionary was killed by the Aoka Indians, who subsequently became a Christian tribe, interestingly. He's the one who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in exchange for that which he cannot lose. One is no fool to give up the treasures one cannot keep, money and all these other things, in exchange for that which one cannot lose, eternal life with God. So that's the first point. Now, the second point I want to make is this, that the Savior of the world says we are not to worry about our lives. Now, these are somber times in the world. And as a consequence, there is a high level of anxiety. The threshold to be anxious has been lowered. Anxiety is a sort of a rampant theme of American life and maybe other lives as well. We feel unanchored, without ballast. This is what sociologists sometimes call weightlessness. If one doesn't live in a universe that is real and ordered and has purpose, then one begins to cast doubt upon one's self and one's ability to live. These are weightless times for many, and weightlessness gives anxiety. But Jesus says, I tell you not to worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? I had to go to Philadelphia early Tuesday morning. This was the day after the plane crash. And I was talking to a friend of mine. I said, I sort of hate to have to fly in the morning because it wasn't sure, you know, whether this was terrorism or what it was. And he says, Foster, the day of your death was settled before you were ever created or born. You know, that's what the 139th Psalm says. And whether it's a bullet in the head or a coronary artery, that time is fixed. Quit worrying about it and go give your talk. <laughs> so I did. Although I have to say the plane was empty. There might have been 30 people on there. I was carefully looking for terrorists. I'm having to fly a lot. You can't add it, Jesus said. Why do you worry about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of them. And so he says, strive for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, the thing I need to say this morning, and I want you to take it away from here because otherwise you'll be confused. The first thing I have to say is that to be anxiety-free requires an eschatologic hope. We have to be realistic here. The German theologian Debelius said, it is the pure will of God that his children should be free from anxiety, but they can obey the commandment perfectly only in the kingdom of God. The passage is to be taken in an absolute sense, Debelius says, we should take these lessons absolutely, but they can be taken in an absolute sense only 
because they are eschatological. They have to do with things in the end. The absence of anxiety is based on our concept of heaven. Now, the birds of the air and the lilies of the field are signals of transcendence. They are symbols of the end time. There are many things in the Bible that are different from reality, but that are absolutely true in final things in the end times. The birds of the air and the lilies of the field are signals of transcendence. They're symbols that say one is eternally safe. And therefore, there should be no final anxiety. There'll always be birds until the end of time. And their joyful singing when morning begins in the dawn, in the darkest part of the day, their joyful singing will always be symbols of hope to the humans who hear them. But birds die in their prime. They are killed by hawks, cats, guns, and poisons. Their symbol is the universal birdhood. Birdhood is a symbol of the joy of freedom, to take up wings and fly, and to rejoice in life and the universe. Birdhood is not a symbol of guaranteed safety for the individual bird. And the same would be said of flowerhood. We will always have flowers as symbols of the beauty of the universe. But flowers fade and die, sometimes prematurely because there is no water or because they encounter a plow. Flowerhood is about the universal beauty of God and his kingdom and not the safety of a lily or a rose. They simply say that the beauty of the world and final safety is in God's hand. Now in this passage, Jesus says, do not worry because you are finally safe. There's a connection here between the first part, you know, laying up your treasures in heaven, a connection between earthly life and the kingdom of heaven. You're finally safe because you're connected to heaven and to me. You and your family and your friends are finally safe. Do not worry about disease or terrorism or life or death. I thought the experience of the two Baylor girls, Dana Curry and Heather Mercer, were model expressions of what this passage is about, the truth of the mountain sermon. They freely acknowledge that when the Taliban fighters opened their jail in the middle of the night, they were terrified. Most humans are afraid of premature death. There are not many humans who want to depart life early, and certainly not at the risk of torture or mutilation or whatever. They were terrified about the temporal events. Even so, Mrs. Curry said, their mood was peaceful, and they sang and read Bible verses. They even laughed as the van drove southward. They were terrified and also peaceful because their final destination was assured. And that's what this 
is about. Fear and terror can be defeated because of the final hope we have of eternal life and God's providence. This passage is really about God's providence. And what the passage say is, the only way to really live is to be ready to die. Indeed, when you think about it, our whole faith is based on that truth. Our faith begins with the cross, with the death of this Savior who said, be not afraid. Our faith begins with the cross, but it ends with the empty tomb. And that's what this passage is all about, God's providence. Now, Aquinas defined God's providence as the foreseeing care and guardianship of God over his creatures. And the foreseeing has to do with his foreknowledge. Predestination, Aquinas says, is the necessity that God's providence occur in a particular way. That the time of my death is set that these things happen because of God's foreknowledge outside of time. But Thomas Aquinas says that what God's providence means is that he allows nothing to happen to the just that would finally prevent their salvation. He will watch over and guard them to assure their salvation. Paul summarizes this very succinctly. What he says is, death is swallowed up in victory. So I think that this is a very important thing, that you see that these are eschatologic promises which take away worry. Now, I do want to say just quickly two other things that impressed me about these two young women's adventure. They said that by and large, the Taliban guards treated them well, and several of them called them their sisters and said they would guard them with their lives. Now, these are men who are at the same time beating other Afghan women in the jail. Now, the question is why? They were arrested and threatened with death because it was claimed that they were proselyting for Christianity. That's what they were in there for. And you know, and I thought, now why would these fierce Taliban warriors say, well, I'll be a brother to these two young women? Well, probably because it's like most witness. It is most valid when it is seen, not talked about. And one has the sense that as they watched them in prison and saw their lack of fear and remembered that why they came was to help the Afghans. One of these girls, her family said, was obsessed with the Afghans from the very beginning because they were the poorest and most pitiful people in the world and she felt like she had to go help them. And she also said, we're coming back after all this. I think that these two young women and the others are paradigms, they're models of what Jesus is saying here. Don't worry about things. You may be in prison, you may die, but you're under my care and you're ultimately safe. You're in God's providence. Therefore, study the birds and study the lilies, but understand that they are about birdhood and flowerhood, that they're symbols of joy and freedom and beauty, and not a promise of exemption from those things that cause us fear and anxiety. We do die prematurely and can get killed. 
Now, the last thing I want to say is this, that the now is a part of eternity, and therefore, live it. Jesus understands that we're going to worry. One of my faculty's daughters come down with a serious illness, and he told me yesterday morning, her mother and I are so worried about her. Of course, you're going to worry about your children. But we need to remember that worry and anxiety are always coupled with tomorrow. And we live in today. And what Jesus is saying here is, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Paul Tillich, in his very great sermon called The Eternal Now, powerfully affirmed Jesus' demand to live in the now without anxiety. He said, we have anxiety about our past because of sins and failures. We have anxiety in the present, the now, because of multiple threats. And we have anxiety about the future. Do I cease to be? Will I be found wanting in God's judgment? We can live in the now, he says. He described it in these beautiful terms. The moving boundary between the past, which is no more, and the future, which is not yet. He would say, that's where we take our stand. And in his sermon, he began with a single verse. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We all know that we have an end, of course. But God says to us who live in the bondage of time, who have to face the end, who cannot escape the past, who need a present to stand on and a future with hope. Each of these dominions of time, past, present, and future, force us to face ultimate questions. And there's one answer to these questions, Professor Tillich said, the eternal. There's one power that suppresses the consuming power of time, the eternal. He who was and is and is to come, the beginning and the end. He gives us forgiveness for what has passed. He gives us courage for what is to come. He gives us rest in the eternal present. Christians have always understood the truth about the Savior's instruction not to worry, that it is vested in the eternal. The apostle said it, well, the Lord is at hand. He's in the present with us. Have no anxiety about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That peace that passes understanding is far, far incomparably better than Valium. So the lesson here is simple. Don't covet and lay up treasures in heaven. Don't worry about the threats in life. Your anxiety 
is canceled by eternity. And live fully in the now without fear, assured of your forgiveness and assured of your courage because of his presence. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, the latest installment in the series here in the Mountain Sermon. We ask that you would grant us hearts and minds to hear and see. And I pray for those of us in the room, for those of us in the country, for those of us in the world, for all human beings, that the hope which comes in you would be realized and claimed. We ask that you would use us in our lives and our things in the trinity of treasures, that we will be faithful to you in all that we do, that we love every human in the world, even enemies, and we'll pray for their souls, and that we will practice mercy wherever mercy is required. We ask you to strengthen us in these resolves that our treasure may be secure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay.